This podcast was recorded in the autumn of 2022, live in a classroom at Yale University. The Jews of Early Modern Ukraine. Guest lecturer, Glenn Diner. Yeah, it's, it's great to be here. I guess you figured out I'm not Timothy Snyder. And um, I teach at Fairfield, which is down the, uh, down the highway a little bit. And I missed my exit. And somehow I wound up here, which is uh, a great honor. Uh, so I'm going to be talking a little bit about the Jews of Ukraine up to the year 1648. I understand you guys came up to the Battle of Grunwald in 1410. So I'm going to go a little bit beyond that, because honestly, not a whole lot is known about the Jewish communities in this part of uh, Eastern Europe uh, before then. And so we're going to go through all this and we're going to come up to 1648. Um, I assume to this point, you've really been learning about the story of colonizers and the colonized. Colonizers being Lithuanians and then Poles. Uh, which you're just starting to get into, and the colonized being Ukrainians in this part. What I would like to talk about today is a third very prominent group, and that's the Jewish community, which is neither one of these things. Right? The Jews constitute a diaspora group, meaning they're uh, without a homeland, so to speak. They're a guest, um, and they have to somehow mediate between these colonizers and the colonized. There are certain advantages to being the diaspora group, if you think about it. They have a pretty far-flung social and mercantile network. They speak their own language and are able to cultivate you know, an, uh, an elite culture or subculture in these parts. And um, you know, it's it's um, it's, it's a situation of where, where they're able to obtain economic niches and have a great deal of mobility. Those things are true. However, it's also a situation of physical vulnerability. The Jews are members of a, um, well, ostensibly problematic religion. And you know, as a result of this, they really wind up serving the more powerful groups, meaning Lithuanian than the Polish colonizers. And this works out for a while until they really pay a horrible price for this. You know, because Ukrainians are going to rise up under Khmelnytsky. And uh, Khmelnytsky is an anti-colonial hero from a Ukrainian perspective. But from a Jewish perspective, after a series of horrific massacres, you know, Khmelnytsky for them is, is a vicious persecutor. And this is kind of the price that they pay. I want to start with the bad news and then move on to better news. Uh, the bad news is Jews, as you probably figured out, are a pariah group, as some of the things I mentioned indicate. And uh, that has very deep roots here. It goes all the way back, in fact, to early church fathers. Um, the most benign, and I would say the formula that's basically adopted throughout most of real everyday life is probably that one that's attributable, attributable to Augustine. Okay, and we'll go into that in a minute. But first, 
I just want to address this image, which if you can make it out, is really a kind of image of ambivalence because over here on this side, you have Jewish merchants, traders. They don't look very prosperous. Um, on the other side, you have peasants in their holiday garb. And uh, the painter is Chelmoinski, who would, who would paint Polish and Ukrainian kind of everyday life landscapes and, and depict sort of scenes of everyday life. Um, they're together, they're gathered in front of a tavern, but you can tell they're pretty apart, right? They're divided by their dress. They're divided by their language. You know, Jews are speaking Yiddish predominantly, um, and the peasants have their own local dialect. Uh, it's gonna be a Slavic language. And there's little kind of communication between them. They, uh, the Jews are also involved in very different activity you know, as traders, as petty merchants, compared to the peasants who on their holiday are dancing and they're, they're enjoying themselves, probably drinking. And inside, if we went in there, we would probably see a Jewish tavern keeper. Jews leased taverns and distilleries from the nobility. The vast majority of taverns and distilleries throughout these regions were actually run by Jews. And uh, you really have sort of a, a I would say, an interaction, but not an integration, right? An interaction within very prescribed social categories. You can call it a symbiosis because Jews are providing essential services, um, the peasants providing essential services to them, but of course it can also develop into real animosity, misunderstanding, resentment, and outright violence. So that's why I would call it a situation of ambivalence. Where does the pariah status come from? If we go back to Augustine, I'd like to look at this text very closely because it looks like anti-Semitism, but it's not really intended to be so. This is from his Contra Faustum. It is not, as you say, not by bodily death shall the ungodly race of carnal Jews perish. And what he's basically saying is you can't kill Jews. And they may have rejected Christ, but they live among us and they're not to be harmed bodily. And this is in a context of forced conversions at this time period, you know, outright violence and death. And so he's really actually proscribing this. He's forbidding this kind of, this kind of thing. For whoever destroys them in this way shall suffer sevenfold vengeance, that is, shall bring upon himself the sevenfold penalty under which the Jews lie for the crucifixion of Christ. And so he is blaming Jews for the death of Christ. Uh, and, and deicide, or at least the uh, murder of the human embodiment of God, is a pretty heavy, heavy penalty. So to the end of the seven days of time, the continued preservation of the Jews will be proof to believing Christians of the subjection merited by those who in the pride of their kingdom put the Lord to death. And here is perhaps the most dangerous formula of all because what it's basically saying is Jews are to be kept around in a state of misery, right? As, as witness to what happens when you reject Christ. But they're to be kept around. Now the reason why I consider this so dangerous is what happens when Jews don't fulfill that role of misery, of subjection. What happens then? 
what happens when they're perceived as maybe violating that hierarchy, even subverting that hierarchy. And of course, at the heart of anti-Semitism is the claim of excessive Jewish power, influence, and wealth. And all these things are to come into play. So what I'm asking is, is this formula a license to kill when that's, uh, the Jewish part of the deal is not held up, right? The subjection or the misery. And, um, you know, I, I think that, that kind of explains the, the trajectory that we're going to follow. Most of the time, most of the time, Jews are going to lead a relatively prosperous and stable existence. But then there are these episodes, extremely violent, devastating episodes. Today, what we would call genocide in some cases, you know. Um, and, you know, are Jews even aware of this bargain? Are they aware of this formula? It seems they are to an extent because rabbinical leaders will actually forbid uh, ostentatious, display, ostentatious display, like jewelry and fancy clothing and, and that kind of a thing. And they'll try very hard, but it's very hard to control such things also. Uh, that being said, so we've got this kind of, I would say, dangerous balancing act, you know, and um, it's like a collective balancing act in this this collective sense of ambivalence. That being said, most of the Jews of the world are going to move to this part of the world, not all the Ukraine. It's going to be also you know, the Polish kingdom and other lands in Eastern Europe. But it's pretty incredible. 75% of the world's Jewish population is going to reside in Eastern Europe by the 19th century. And there's a reason for that. It can't be that horrible if they're living there. It certainly can't be that deadly. The reason for that is that stability and relative prosperity. They have economic autonomy. They're not allowed to own land, yet that can also be, uh, I, I suppose, an advantage because they move into somewhat more lucrative pursuits like trade, um, crafts, money lending, and most importantly of all, as time develops, leaseholding from the nobility. They will lease pretty much all of the non-agricultural enterprises of the nobles. Political autonomy, we're going to see how they develop virtually self-government. Now, later on, anti-Semitic claims are going to be that they constitute a state within a state. I think that goes way too far. You know, it's all contingent on the Polish landowners who own the vast majority of land in these areas. Um, and uh, linguistic autonomy. The vernacular, everyday language, is Yiddish, a combination of German and Hebrew with some Slavic elements thrown in. And then Hebrew, which functions a lot like Latin as an elite clerical language, a literary language, one that's not really spoken until the rise of Zionism. Now, we can go way back to the origins of Jewish presence in what becomes the Ukraine, but um, historians will often start with the Khazar kingdom. And it's kind of exciting to historians to think that there was a Jewish kingdom. Supposedly the king converted to Judaism. There's a classic called the Kuzari, which tells a story how the king had a representative from uh, the Christians and the Jews and the Muslims, and he chose Judaism. 
And it's exciting because you thought that um, it was only ancient Israel. That was the last time that you had autonomy. And suddenly we find we have this Jewish kingdom. And there are little bits of evidence here and there that such a Jewish kingdom existed. Letters, mentionings in chronicles and that kind of a thing. It's kind of a mess because there are historians who accept this and who devote their whole careers to writing about this, and then there are historians who completely deny it, who think this whole thing was a myth and that all these sources are forged. Your reading was uh, Dan Shapiro's article. It's probably the best article we have on the origins of you know, Jewish presence in Ukrainian lands. Um, he kind of, he contradicts himself. He kind of does both. On the first page, you'll notice he says, there was no Jewish elite that converted you know, to, in the Khazar kingdom. And then three, three pages later, he's quoting it. He's, he's citing it. He's mentioning it. And if you look at the footnote, he says that Pritzok's book on this, which goes through a lot of these sources, is complete nonsense. And I could write a whole book you know, that contains all the mistakes in this work. And then those three pages later, he's quoting Pritzok. So you know, we're all over the place with this. And I think part of the problem is it's been politicized. Because if you are an anti-Zionist, it becomes very interesting, the possibility that actually Jews didn't originate in you know, ancient Israel. They originated in Khazaria. And this is something that, that uh, the early Zionists are actually having to contend with. And so really, every anti-Zionist gets very excited about this possibility. And of course, every Zionist historian is very, is, is, is very interested in refuting even the existence of a Jewish presence in this kingdom. So Charles Stomford recently uh, published an article in which he, he went through all these sources and showed they were all complete fabrications and nonsense. And that's where we are. So I can't say anything for sure about the Khazar kingdom other than, I don't know, maybe when, where there's smoke, there's fire. And that may be the best that we can do. There might have been some indication of a Jewish presence there among certain elites, but we're on more solid ground when we get into Kievan Rus. And here's a map. Um, I watched a few of uh, Professor Snyder's YouTube videos, and I, I noticed he didn't use a lot of maps, so here's a good opportunity to see what it looks like. Um, anybody know what the Golden Horde is? Yeah, what's the golden, well, I'm not asking the grad students, Mongols. come on. What? Mongols, right. Do you know why it's called the Golden Horde? Their, their battle tents were gold. And so that's how they got this name. And I don't think it's pejorative, but I'm not 100% sure. So that's, that's the Mongols over there. And we have Jewish presence is really on an axis, kind of a diagonal axis running through Kiev. And I looked at a map of trade routes, and sure enough, it, they, it's towns along a trade route leading into Hungary. And that's how the Jewish presence is determined there. Um, it's, it's an unstable existence, you know, and um, it's, it's um, not very permanent. And you find little tiny mentionings here and there. It's not a sizable Jewish presence there at all. Where it's going to get much bigger is when the Grand Duchy of Lithuania comes into the picture and effectively colonizes these areas. Um, now the Jews are temporarily expelled. Uh, some link it to the expulsion of Jews from Spain. I guess he, uh, it was a copycat expulsion. That's what you read sometimes. But then when he, um, he changes his mind a few years later, it's revoked under the same, uh, the same monarch. 
And now you have approximately 4,000 Jews in 24 Ukrainian towns. That doesn't sound like a whole lot. It's a frontier kind of existence where we find evidence of Jews actually taking part in the defense of these towns, which are under a lot of pressure from Tatars especially. They're, uh, they're learning to shoot. They're doing even military exercises. It's not your typical image of East European Jews, so it's kind of interesting. Um, but they, they do manage to survive, and it becomes safer and safer as the Grand Duchy of Lithuania really uh, sort of concretizes its presence there. And then you start to have more Jews moving in. Um, and um, that's where we are, really, with our knowledge about these areas. I mean, there's not a whole lot more. And we're kind of just about up to the point where you are in the, I think we're past the point that you are chronologically. So now we're gonna go beyond that a little bit for the next hundred years or so. And um, this is where Poland, Crown Poland is gonna come into the picture. And I really call this colonization full-fledged because it is kind of a big land grab. You know, you have Polish nobles, petty nobles, magnates, these large landholders, coming in and just grabbing up as much territory as they possibly can. Um, it's the result of an actual agreement called the Union of Lublin, um, where, whereby the threat of Russia is such that uh, Lithuania kind of accedes to this agreement, which seems to really benefit the Poles. Um, it's almost like a protection agreement, it seems like. And you'll probably learn a lot more about it. But for our purposes today, those Polish nobles are going to bring Jews in to settle their towns and to run their enterprises. And this is what it looks like. So the, the dark gold parts are the, what the Grand Duchy of Lithuania is, um, and these other parts are... Poland, and this comes to be known as the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. And um, by 1648, you go from 4,000 to 40,000 Jews living in 115 Ukrainian towns. And um, you know, that, that colonizing activity is very good for the Jews because they have these economic possibilities. They're still not allowed to own land but what they do is they begin leasing the various enterprises. Now, I'm gonna put a question to you. Why is leaseholding, like leasing a tavern or a mill, better from the Jewish perspective than owning it? And I'll give you a big hint, they're leasing it from the all-powerful nobility. Any ideas why it's better to lease than to own? Yeah. You got it right away. It's, you have the protection of the nobles. Nobody is going to burn down a tavern if it belongs to the nobleman. But as I mentioned before, you know, Jews are in a very physically vulnerable situation. So this leaseholding arrangement is actually very beneficial to Jews because they get noble protection at least from that standpoint. They're also being taxed pretty mercilessly, and uh, the nobles don't want their best taxpayers to be you know, physically assaulted either. So it's, it's not the most stable situation, but it's, one of, it's, it's good enough 
You know, they have Polish protection. Now, what's in it for the nobility? Why Jews? And I'll give you another hint. It's not because they like Jews. In fact, it's very much the opposite. So why would you invite Jews in to lease your various enterprises? Any ideas? Yeah? Maybe so you can like, keep your eye on them, make sure that they're not doing anything you don't want them to do. For sure. I mean, there's a lot of control involved as well. But OK, yeah? Wasn't money lending considered like unholy? Okay, good. So, so it's not quite true. You know, you, you do have actual banks uh, at a certain point that nobles can borrow from, but there are a lot of hoops to jump through. And um, Jews represent easy credit, you know, and you're in a, a socially superior position to your, uh, to your creditor. So that becomes very tempting, and Jews are involved very much in money lending. And it's funny because what um, I base a lot of this on is an article, a series of articles by Shmuel Ettinger. Uh, they're, they're in Hebrew, so most of you wouldn't have access to them, but they're the most, I would say, full information about this time period and this place. And he spends a lot of pages trying to argue that Jews really weren't that involved in money lending. Um, but then he contradicts himself too. I think money lending has a bad image, but the fact of the matter is people needed credit, you know, and this is, this is where they could get it for the most part. So yes, money lending is a big part of it. Anything else about Jews that makes them attractive as, as um, leaseholders? Yeah? Does it have something to do with the fact that because of their, just, they can't enter other industries or they can't own land, then there's a guarantee that they'll serve that role? Or that Very much so. I, I would call it a captive service sector. You know, they don't have a lot of options. Um, yeah? Uh, because they're not necessarily paying a tithe to the church, maybe they're they want to be a good source of tax revenue. Okay, so, so that's a complicated question. Yes, they're a great source of tax revenue, but believe me, they're paying more taxes than anybody. They're paying taxes to the crown, um, and we'll go into that a little bit. They don't pay tithe to the church. That's actually an interesting point that I haven't thought about a lot. Um, so that's a great point. But they're paying so many other ways, including to their own communities, that I'm not sure. It probably offsets. But, but absolutely. Now, one thing nobody thought of uh, yet is um, politics. No matter how wealthy your Jewish leaseholder is going to become, and some of them really do quite well by the system, they're never going to be a political threat to you. Okay, and I can add other things. Uh, business acumen, you know, historically involved in trade. Uh, where they came from was Western and Central Europe, especially the German and Czech-speaking lands. And in those areas, they worked as merchants a lot of the time, until they were pushed out by the townspeople. They're also being pushed out of parts of Poland proper, we could call it Crown Poland, um, by the same Christian townspeople. And they're moving, they're being pushed into these areas. So it's actually, um, it, it's, it's a great boon to the Jews who are losing opportunities in one place to be able to come to another place. But of course, this is all a colonial scheme. So it's volatile, it's dangerous, you know. Jews are running these, um, these leases, uh, but um, you know, they're not very popular with, with the peasants who are now being enserfed. And this is like a second serfdom it's called. And so um, there we have Augustine's rule being violated 
because they're in a position of superiority to the surrounding peasants by running these taverns and mills and tolls and so on. Um, it becomes a real problem. It, it becomes intolerable. Now, this is the reason they're not allowed to own land, because if they own land, they're going to be lording it directly over peasants who are farmers, essentially. And that's intolerable. It just, it just the optics are too bad. But to run a tavern in the mill and so on, that scene is OK, uh, except from the, uh, from the perspective of the uh, peasants, who really uh, experience this in a negative way, obviously. And um, you know, we, we have a volatile system, but it's held in place as long as the Polish nobility is in power. And here's the thing, the nobility doesn't want the headache of collecting taxes directly from these Jews. Plus, uh, they can't be trusted to you know, pay their taxes. And they all seem to have the same name, like Yitzchak ben Moshe. And so you know, there's like 17 of them in one town. And so what they do is they entrust the Jewish communities First, Jewish tax collectors specifically, and then the kahals, which is the Jewish self-government, to collect the taxes for them. And in the process, they're giving the kahal, I guess you'd compare it to a municipality, they're giving the kahals complete autonomy almost to run daily affairs to manage the garbage collection and uh, keep the streets clean and try to make sure people don't encroach on each other's leases. And uh, they manage the educational system. And they start to develop these extensive instruments of autonomy to the point where when there are disputes between communities, they develop regional councils. And then a real game changer is when the crown basically says, okay, we just want a lump sum from you. You know, forget about individual communities collecting taxes, give us one lump sum. And then uh, the Grand Duke of Lithuania says the same thing. And that's when developing out of that is the Council of Four Lands, which is kind of like functioning as not just a supreme IRS, a supreme tax collector, but a supreme court that's adjudicating disputes between communities uh, that deals with really, you call them national problems, a blood libel accusation, a ritual murder accusation, the accusation that Jews have killed a Christian child um, and use their blood for their, use the blood for their rituals, which never happened, I should emphasize, but it was kind of like the rumor that refused to go away because it symbolically reenacts the crucifixion and it has a lot of resonance that way. Um, so, you know, this Council for Lands would have um, uh, somebody intervene and try to prevent, you know, this thing from getting out of control. They would negotiate the taxes and they would serve as a Supreme Court in secular matters. Now, each kahal also had a rabbinical court. So the entire Jewish community is known as the kahilah. It's run by the kahal, but they also have rabbis who are sort of separate from everything. That council for lands is mainly merchants, is mainly wealthy merchants and leaseholders. Okay, the rabbis meet separately and they tend to judge religious matters, which makes a lot of sense until you try to figure out what a religious matter is. It's not so clear. Uh, murder seems to be a religious matter. Theft 
kind of, but it's also a business matter. So there's a lot of like jurisdictional disputes going on between rabbinical courts and lay courts. But by and large, you know, when things are functioning smoothly, they support each other. And um, there's a, a actual power to excommunicate members that's never really used, but the threat of excommunication called the harem is enough to scare people into obeying the authority of these various courts. Because being excommunicated would really be truly horrible. You know, you would really have no place to go in Christian society, in Jewish society. And uh, it's like social death and uh, a really devastating condition to be in. Um, it's never used until the rise of the false messianic movement of Shabbatai Tzvi, which happens later on. We'll maybe touch upon it at the very end. Now, a shtadlan is a very important function. The shtadlan is a lobbyist and every community would have one. He speaks the language of the land. He knows the laws really well. He's charming and uh, has somewhat of a secular education. So a lot of times doctors would serve this purpose. And he basically is the go-between. You know, he'll talk to the authorities when something goes wrong. And this is kind of like you know, Jewish foreign policy, you could call it. You know, this is how they defend their communities. Through um, lobbying, yes, through giving of bribes, I mean, this was actually totally on the books out in the open. It was a normal way of doing business. You bribed the secular officials to protect your community, and no one seemed to see anything wrong with that. Now, with this extensive autonomy, really the most extensive autonomy since antiquity, you also have the development of vibrant religious life. And um, the wooden synagogues, here's one in uh, Khodorov in the... Uh, Ukrainian territories, they can develop very ornate, beautiful artwork, even though they're wooden synagogues, which suggests less wealth. Um, beautiful ceiling paintings. Down in the corner there, I put an, an image of this guy who's chained to the synagogue wall outside by his neck. Any idea what he did wrong? He broke the Sabbath. So this is actually called the Kuna. And I put it there to remind us not to get too nostalgic about this um, flourishing religious life, because there's a lot of religious compulsion involved too. You know, keeping the Sabbath, Sabbath was not a choice, at least not throughout this period of time. And if you go to the town of Przesucha in Poland, you can actually see one of these on the synagogue wall. It's pretty interesting. Um, most people could pay a fine and get out of it, you know, and they would prefer to pay the fine than, than be publicly humiliated in this way, but it was there. Now, Jews are able to move into cities, but again, you come into direct conflict with the Christian townspeople. And economics is something that's perceived in an ethnic way, right? There are groups against groups, Christians against Jews. And the Christians managed to exact a lot of money and payment from Jewish merchants. So it, it becomes very expensive to do business in cities. And that's where your leaseholding comes in. And the official word for lease is arenda. You may see it in your readings. The arenda can be a lease on everything we've talked about and some things we didn't talk about. Tolls on roads, ponds. Um, you can lease the tax and then you get to keep anything over the amount that you collect. Uh, you can lease entire villages, taverns, and distilleries. This is an absolute boon to Jews economically. But um, let's just say it's not good to be a serf. 
in this situation. And uh, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth comes to be known as, uh, I don't know if you've heard this before, heaven for the nobles, paradise for the Jews, and hell for the serfs. The reason is, is this is an arrangement that is um, not only economically debilitating for the serfs who have to continually work you know, the nobleman's land for free, along with whatever land they're able to work their own, which is very small, um, they have to you know, pay the, the Jewish tavern keeper, they have to pay the Jewish miller. Um, they, there are even rumors that Jews leased the churches and held keys to the churches, and which would be really humiliating, but some historians have said that's actually not the case. But that is something that made its way up through Ukrainian lore, is that you even had to beg to use your own church. You know, so it's, it's a really humiliating situation, whether that last thing is true or not. And um, that's, that's the reason for the volatility, but nobody's going to attack the Jewish leaseholder for the simple reason that he's under the protection of the nobleman. Nobles own the vast majority of land. Um, they're increasingly more powerful than the king who becomes an elected uh, monarch. And uh, they really, uh, I would say, uh, they, they own their own towns and those are increasingly attracted to Jews to settle in. It's, it's a system of patronage, really. Now, inside the tavern, you have that integration that I was talking about, but it's really more of an interaction. And here you have Jewish musicians, um, non-Jews who are dancing, and you have the Jewish tavern keepers over on that side. And notice that the wife of the tavern keeper is pouring the liquor. I'm not sure whose child that is in the corner there, but uh, children were very much present in these taverns as well. This was where people would spend their leisure time. These were also effectively news venues, entertainment venues, banks, country stores, especially in the smaller you know, rural areas or small towns. They were the hub of everything, competing really with the church, you know, because after the web, after the wedding, you would you know, proceed from the church to the tavern, where you'd be met by the tavern keeper, who's kind of like the anti-priest. Um, but what I want to emphasize is gender, because uh, women worked in the society, in Jewish society, and it was expected. It wasn't something that women fought for as a right. It was absolutely expected. Your value on the marriage market was determined by what business promise you could bring to the marriage. Um, that would often be linguistic, like how well you speak Polish or Ukrainian or whatever, um, how well you know arithmetic. And um, these, these marriages were really business partnerships. Usually the husband would be dealing with the suppliers. He might drive a taxi, you know, a horse and cart during the week. Uh, the woman would be, the wife would be serving the customers. And it's a pretty rough lifestyle. But why that's important is the Jewish familial unit presents a kind of double barrel threat economically because both the husband and wife are working. And this is absolutely the norm. Occasionally you have the situation where an extremely learned and accomplished rabbi would uh, study all day long and the wife would work in the marketplace or in the tavern, whatever, but that was a pretty rare occurrence. Now, one Arenda dispute that I went through uh, pretty extensively illustrates the problem with authority 
the way things stand and the importance of the development of the Council of Four Lands, that Supreme Court. And I just want to go through this really quickly because what happens in this situation of leases, and this is probably a tavern that's being leased, is competition between Jews. Okay, in this case, Simeon leases a liquor arenda. Reuben attempts to purchase it for the next three years before his term is up. So he's the encroacher. And then Simeon goes and negotiates with the local nobleman successfully who gives it to him. Reuben, in this case, goes all the way to the queen and gets her scribe to support his side. And he tells the town council to award the lease to Reuben. The town council agrees, town council agrees but for a bribe. Reuben pays the bribe. Simeon bribes the nobleman. So lots of bribes going on here and offers an even higher price. And uh, the nobleman orders the town council to withdraw from Reuben. And then the queen steps in and supports Reuben. So you have like a, a, these conflicting secular authorities that get involved, which leads me to think it's much more than a tavern. It could be you know, an entire right to distill, which is called propanatia. Um, but it's something that is pretty lucrative. So they actually don't stop with the authorities, not even the queen. They now go to the rabbis. And the rabbis are extremely prominent in the society, which is a you know, community of believers. Some of these rabbis have their own yeshivas, these Talmudic academies, where um, they teach the Talmud all day long. But when disputes occur that have to do with some aspect of Jewish law, halakha, they will often send questions to the most prominent rabbis. And this is what happens in this case. So Rabbi Isaac ben Betzalel of Volodymyr, he argues in favor of Simeon. And he quotes a medieval German source to basically say, do not encroach. Okay, so he, he's basically anti-Rubin, anti-encroachment. But then they go to a more prominent rabbi, Isaac Luria, who's young, but he's kind of a rising star, and he actually rules in favor of Reuben and says that the laws of encroachment don't apply because this is only a potential purchase, right? The lease term hadn't begun yet, so it's a potential, it's like the next three years of the term. And he says it's known in the entire kingdom that we buy the right to farm taxes and liquor and other rights in the town with an arenda contract, and they're also accustomed to sell the arenda before the term for the first holder of the arender expires, and they sell it to a second person, so Reuben's okay. He's allowed to encroach, okay? Now, Luria's young. He may be brilliant and a rising star, but he's young. So he sends it to an older rabbinic authority for a kind of second opinion, just to make sure. And this guy, his name is Rabbi Joseph Katz, and he rules actually against him and rules in favor of Simeon. So you see it's a whole mess. It's a, whole, it's, a, it's a jurisdictional nightmare. And he argues that the laws of encroachment do apply to ownerless property, and um, only when there's a complete public agreement can that law be abrogated, and uh, we don't know how it's resolved. But we do know that about 50 years later, the Council of Four Lands finally issues a ruling banning any Jew from bidding on an arenda that's held by a fellow Jew. And then the Lithuanian council steps in and agrees. They reiterate the ban and they give a reason. 
competitive bidding causes damage to the Jewish community by raising the costs of leasing the arenda. So now with the Council for Lands, which began as basically a tax collecting you know, uh, institution, we actually have it regulating daily life and economic law. And uh, things start getting more regulated, more normal, and more in favor of Jewish business practices. But there's a downside to all this liquor sales. It may be lucrative, and that's why people are fighting about it. Here's a much later depiction. Um, you see a pretty satanic looking uh, Jewish tavern keeper who's um, looking on unconcerned as the peasants are drunk and passed out. And you know, th this is a real problem. You know, and, and people begin to blame peasant drunkenness on Jews, and they accuse the Jewish tavern keeper of you know, driving up his drinking debts and taking advantage of the peasantry, and it causes a lot of, kind of social instability as a result. Um, now, on the positive side of things, we know from rabbinic takanot that non-Jews were also part of this thing and profiting from these arendas on liquor because you can't keep a tavern running on the Sabbath if you're Jewish or on holidays, like we just had the holiday of Rosh Hashanah. Uh, it's not lawful. So what do they do? They, they have local Christians helping them to run the taverns on those days. And actually it becomes a formal partnership because that's legally halakhically what you have to do. And so really, you see a surprising amount of cooperation and um, you know, economic integration going on at the local level, where uh, if you really want to spell it out, Christians are helping Jews to get around their own Sabbath restrictions so that they can remain profitable. And um, they're also making you know, a fair amount of money doing so. So there's a, a fair amount of cooperation going on. Uh, there are rabbis who are against this practice, strenuously against it. And Rabbi Betzalel Darshan of Pshemesh blames the 1648 massacres on this practice itself. In very emotional language, the blood of fathers and sons, the blood of pious men and children, or women, the blood of saintly men and women, and the blood of baby boys and girls still suckling at their mother's breasts, who had never sinned or committed, sorry, any crime, and the blood of rabbis and their disciples was spilled like water. This is the 1648 uprising and Milnitsky massacre of the Jewish communities talking about. God is righteous. We can't blame God for this. And notice he's not going to blame the Cossacks either. He's not going to blame Milnitsky. It is we who are wicked because of our repeated desecrations of the Sabbath. A select group the majority of villagers who undertake arendas buy and sell on the Sabbath through the agency of villagers, all in a deceitful manner. They also order their Gentile servants to do such and such work, and they sit and teach them how to repair or to spoil the job. This is all happening on the Sabbath. And of course, God has punished the entire Jewish community for this. Ori for my eyes, which saw this many times, and I had no way of protesting. And then he goes on kind of like a Jewish mother. Now you see what happens, and maybe you'll listen to me. 
And um, turns out nobody listens to him because this practice continues. It's the only way of running a lucrative tavern and distillery. Uh, in fact, rabbis get involved in writing contracts up where they form fictitious partnerships and the practice continues. But let me go back to that Kamilnitsky uprising um, because it, it's absolutely devastating. And yet, I'm not going to condone massacres, obviously, but it's understandable the position of, of Cossacks and Ukrainians. Now, who are Cossacks? They're essentially peasants who resist, resist serfdom. They obtain horses and weaponry. They often will ride down in the Zaporozhian uh, district and make, uh, carry out raids on the Ottoman territories. And uh, the Polish army tries to use them and register them in the Polish army. Then they try to cut down their numbers. And there are a series of Cossacks revolts against the Polish government, Polish-Lithuanian government. And in 1648, there's a major uprising led by Khmelnytsky, who's a semi-Polanized Ukrainian nobleman who's been spurned. Uh, he fell in love with... Uh, daughter of a very powerful, wealthy Polish nobleman who threw him into jail, and he broke out and rode down and fomented a rebellion. And um, the rebellion, look, I mean, if they could reach the Polish nobility, they probably would have tried. But you can't reach them. They're too mobile. They're too powerful. And so who do they attack? The perceived agents of the Polish nobility namely the Jewish leaseholders and other Jews in their midst. And Jews are massacred in huge numbers and in very sadistic manners. I'm not going to read because uh, it's, it's absolutely horrific. But, uh, and you wonder if there's like a, a little bit of imagination going on in these chronicles. This is the famous one by Nathan of Hanover. But let's just say it's gruesome. And um, a, a colleague of mine, Adam Teller, uh, has found a Polish version of this that seems to pretty much verify that this kind of thing was happening. It's, it's a furious massacre. And if the Jewish population pre-1648 was 40,000, only about 21,000 seemed to survive. Many 8,000 become refugees and are wandering across Europe. Um, 1,000 convert to save their lives, and 3,000 are taken captive mainly by Tatars and sold in slave markets in uh, far-flung places in the Ottoman Empire, often redeemed by the local Jewish communities there. And um, you know, it's, it's an absolute shock to the Jewish sense of security and stability. As a result, and I'm going to finish here, um, as a result, you know, there, there's a kind of psychic trauma to the Jewish collectivity that makes it easier for this false messiah, Shabbatai Tzvi, to arise. You know, it's a little bit later, but he bases his whole career on vengeance for the 1648 massacres and manages to convince Jews all over the world that he's the messiah and they follow him and they sell off their possessions and some move to the land of Israel, convinced that the messiah has come. Um, but, now, after that disappointment and throughout this period, really, Jewish communities managed to reconstitute themselves very quickly. We know that from the number of houses, the Jewish population continues to increase, really significantly increase. How do we explain this? If it was such a devastating massacre, it seems that the poor were probably the main victims. 
because they have fewer means of fleeing, you know, the, the, the Cossack uh, armies, the, the wealthier are able to flee successfully and they can come back and reconstitute these towns. And that seems to be what happened in this case. But um, look, this is, a, this is a point in time when the system broke down, when it didn't really work. But I just wanna end by saying that the system really worked most of the time, that this was more the exception than the rule. There was this kind of economic-based symbiosis, really based on a relationship with the Polish nobility. And it's really only with the decline of the nobility itself towards the end of the 19th century that the system breaks down completely. That's when you're gonna have the so-called pogroms, these anti-Jewish riots, you know, beginning in the 1880s and then 1903 to six, and the worst being in 1919 and during the Holocaust. Um, this system usually worked and usually kept Jewish life in the Ukraine and the rest of Eastern Europe relatively secure and prosperous. Okay, thank you. These recordings were made and edited by Guy Ortoliva at the Yale Broadcast Studio. Podcast production by Ryan McAvoy.